Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 61, Hostile and Closed Environments. This is part five of our five-part series on the five hazards of human spaceflight. How many times can I say five in a row? Five times. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today, like I said, is the final chapter in this five-part series. Uh, the human journey to Mars is an extremely complex undertaking and challenging hazards such as radiation, isolation, confinement, distance from Earth, gravity, and this last one, hostile and closed environments, are being studied using ground-based analogs, laboratories, and of course, the International Space Station right above us. Today, we consider closed and hostile environments with Dr. Brian Crucian, a biological studies and immunology expert at the Johnson Space Center. Brian serves as the principal investigator for a NASA functional immune study. According to him, quote, the immune system is very complex and several aspects of immunity remain uninvestigated during spaceflight. We now need to delve deeper into the immune system changes that happen in space and determine if these changes uh, during flight elevate clinical risks for astronauts in future deep space missions, end quote. We'll also hear clips from my conversation with Dr. Stan Love, NASA astronaut and just a super smart guy. Love shared his own perspective about living in a hostile enclosed environment himself, and some thoughts about what it will take to make a successful deep space mission. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Brian Crucian. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Brian, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Um, so this is the last in our series of five hazards. We've talked to a lot of experts on the different hazards of spaceflights, particularly dealing with the human body. Um, but this last one, I think, might be one of the more interesting, at least to me, is, is hostile and closed environments. Because how I think of it is, you know, you kind of have to <laughs> almost invent your own planet or Earth, something that's going to contain the human body and, and in a livable space in the not-so-livable you know, interplanetary space, um, and then carry from one body to another. It's such an interesting concept. Uh, but you're an expert in immunology, so I think we should kind of start there. Is when we're talking about um, a hostile or closed environment, where does immunology come in? Humans need a well-functioning immune system to maintain our health. Mm -hmm. And that means protecting us from pathogens, viruses, bacteria, on the way home, someone may sneeze on you and you might catch a rhinovirus or an adenovirus and you'll get a cold and you'll be sick for seven days. Hmm. And so you need a well-functioning immune system, all these different cells that are in the blood and the lymph nodes to keep you healthy. But you also need a well-maintained, a well-tuned immune system. And so the immune system can go out of whack. And if it is hyperactive, you might be at risk for things like allergy, asthma. Uh, if it really persists as a problem, you might develop autoimmune diseases. You also need a healthy immune system to keep you from getting other diseases such as cancer. Right? One of the functions of the immune system is to keep you from getting cancer. We have cells in our body called natural killer cells, and they scavenge the body for malignant cells and eliminate them. And so you need a very well-maintained and properly operating immune system. And when you go into an adverse environment, 
such as space flight or there are terrestrial adverse environments, uh, the immune system can become dysregulated. And we say dysregulated, not suppressed, because it can be functioning too little or functioning too much, a little hyperactive. And so we, at NASA, we have a variety of assays. We can monitor the immune system of the astronauts and see how well their immune system is functioning during spaceflight. Hmm. So what do we know right now? Let's just let's go to the International Space Station. What's happening to the immune system uh, up there right now? Well, if you don't mind, I'll back up a little bit before that. Oh, please. And so for as, as immunologists, our community, and this is immunologists in Europe, Canada, Japan, Russia, our community has been very interested in what happens to people during spaceflight because we all want to get ready for those exploration missions, those deep space missions. And so when we had the space shuttle, right, you could get a sample, a blood sample uh, or a saliva sample from someone, look at their immune system after spaceflight. Uh, and if you get a sample from someone after spaceflight, what you're really looking at are the stresses of landing. Landing is scary. Uh, readaptation after a prolonged deconditioning is a stressor. And so you're really looking at those stressors. And so we needed the International Space Station to come along to give us two things. We need long duration space flight, right? Because if you look at people during short duration space flight, you're looking at the sprint. We want to look at the marathon because that's more like a Mars mission hmm. or a prolonged lunar mission. We also need the ability to sample them and return those samples during that long-duration spaceflight. And so we needed the advent of this national laboratory to afford us the ability to look at what happens to people during long-duration orbital flight. And in this situation, we're using orbital spaceflight as an analog or model for those exploration missions. Hmm. We have other analogs or models we use on Earth as representative spaceflight, for example, Antarctic winter over or hmm. undersea missions. Okay. Are, do they all give us different and relevant data points that help us understand deep space, deep space flight then? Yes. We, we are learning through a variety of flight studies that have been happening on board the International Space Station. We're learning what happens to the immune system during long duration space flight. And there is an early adaptation phase, which is say the first 45 days where you're adjusting to the environment and, and getting used to those new stressors, this hostile environment, and then settle out into what we call space normal. And so we're really more interested in sampling people in the back half of their six-month mission so we can see what their immune system and, and other physiological systems also, what they have settled out to be for space normal. We think that's more reflective of what might be happening during, say, a, a mission that would take several years to Mars. This will allow us to think about countermeasures for this phenomenon, design those countermeasures while we have ISS, maybe validate those countermeasures so we can keep astronauts safe during those deep space exploration missions. So what do we know about the state of the astronauts at the end of their six-month increments? What, what state is the immune system in? So the immune system is very complicated. It's one of the most complicated systems in the body. You have, have many different types of cells, uh, lymphocytes, granulocytes, monocytes, and they all have distinct function. Uh, some of these are, are comprised of what we call innate immunity, and it functions immediately. If you, uh, say, puncture your skin, those cells go to work immediately and they're nonspecific. They want to eat those bacteria and heal that wound and protect you. You also have other types of cells that are what we call pathogen-specific. If you get that virus on the way home, you get that adenovirus or that rhinovirus, you need virus-specific immunity. And so that takes about a week to generate and eliminate that pathogen, but that stays with you for the rest of your life, and you have memory to that particular virus. You never get the same cold virus twice. And so when we look at astronauts during spaceflight, we have to look at all these different aspects of their immune system to answer that simple question. Hmm. Uh, what's happening to innate immunity? 
what's happening to adaptive immunity. The, the, the B cells make antibodies, the T cells control viruses, the natural killer cells uh, help keep us from getting cancer. And so it's a complicated question and we're still looking at some of these aspects. What we have looked at very well have been uh, molecules called cytokines in the blood plasma of astronauts, the, the molecules that regulate immunity, and we can look at them over the course of a mission and see what type of dysregulation, what type of inflammation we have. We've looked at certain types of cells, cells that control latent herpes virus reactivation, and we see those don't work as well. Hmm. That leads to the reactivation of certain types of viruses in astronauts. And so we're characterizing this phenomenon in astronauts. They're not sick at all. I mean, they're working hard and, and enjoying their missions, but these are subclinical phenomenon that make us a little bit worried about what might happen on a Mars mission that would take several years where you're going to increase the radiation and you have no rapid return option. So next I ask about things growing on the space station. But before we get into that, Stan Love gave his own insight into things growing in the space environment and how that relates to planetary protection. So the, the microbes that are in your environment are the ones that you bring with you largely. <laughs> uh, microbes have a very fast turnover rate, so they could evolve a little bit, change a little bit while you were in space, um, but not a lot. And I think they've isolated uh, new microbes on the space station. Space hmm. station's been up there for 10 years, though, so it's, it's had time. Um, but planetary protection is actually something we need to pay pretty close attention to. Um, the moon is probably as dead as a doornail. Uh, it has had no atmosphere for four and a half billion years. It gets irradiated by the sun, the ultraviolet light, the solar wind, the cosmic rays. Uh, there's no water. The temperatures in the daytime are overboiling. The temperatures at night are 200 degrees below zero. And we're pretty sure, and we've got samples back from the moon, of course, and we've looked through them. We have found nothing alive. <laughs> um, we did find some spores on a TV camera on a probe we sent to the moon and then later the astronauts landed next to that probe and brought home the TV camera lens to study what it, how it had changed in 10 years. And they found some viable microbe spores that had not yet been killed, but those guys were not growing and multiplying. Yeah, microbes are tough. Wow. So with that in mind, microbes are very tough. When we talk about Mars, now that's got an atmosphere. Uh, the daytime highs are not as hot, the night, nights are cold, but nights are cold in Antarctica and there are algae living inside rocks in Antarctica they can only photosynthesize during the summer when the sun comes out. Um, so life is pretty tough and there might be microbes on Mars that when they got into a nice warm moist happy earth environment would go berserk and destroy our biosphere. That okay. would stink. Okay yeah, the odds would. are low but <laughs> the risk is terrible. <laughs> you ever seen the movie The Andromeda Strain it gives you a hint of what could possibly happen. <laughs> Uh, that one came back from Venus, and I'm not worried about Venus. Venus is probably really sterile. It's it's pretty it's, hot. There. It's really dang hot. Yeah. yeah. Would would then it would be something that would develop internally, or would it be something maybe from the environment? Because just from having uh, conversations with some of the experts in the past, it seems like there's you know fungus and just stuff growing in the space station. Is that something that's a concern from an immunology perspective? So that's a great question, and what you're basically asking me is what causes it. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a complicated answer as well. Hmm. Uh, you have humans in space is what we call an applied experiment. Meaning, if I'm doing an experiment in my laboratory, I'm controlling one variable. I want to see if a certain diet uh, or radiation or microgravity causes an effect. When I put humans in space, they're subjected to a, a whole bunch of variables. And I, I can't stop that from happening. So they're experiencing stress, microgravity, radiation, 
altered circadian rhythms. They see a sunrise and a sunset every 90 minutes, mm. uh, isolation and a confinement. And so what we're really talking about is not the effect of microgravity, but the effect of spaceflight on these people. <laughs> and spaceflight is defined as all these variables. So all of these variables create a synergy and they affect the human body adversely. And, and we see effects on bone, muscle, fluid shifts, um, um, the immune system. And so collectively, we at JSC and around the world, these scientists are trying to characterize these phenomena so we can develop countermeasures. Hmm. So what do we know about countermeasures that we, do we have countermeasures right now? What are we doing to, based on what we know and recognize, are there things that we have in place that can sort of help uh, protect the immune system on board? Well, that's another big question. We can probably <laughs> spend an hour talking about countermeasures. Hey, we and have I'll, an hour. I'll, I'll try and keep it at the 50,000 foot level. <laughs> and so, yes, we have countermeasures that are already in place. Um, things that you might not consider a countermeasure are, in fact, a countermeasure. Radiation shielding is a countermeasure. Hmm. Uh, maintaining a clean spacecraft is a countermeasure. Uh, propulsion is actually a type of countermeasure. If you can get me to Mars in two weeks, a lot of the problems I'm worried about going go away. Oh, yeah. But what people classically think about is, say, the pill that you would take as your countermeasure. Right. And so we, for, for the immune system, we would look at things like nutritional supplements, uh, probiotics, uh, things that you can take to, to reduce inflammation, uh, and actually medications, pharmacological interventions, uh, can influence the immune system. And so where we stand in my discipline is we're trying to characterize this phenomenon, and we'll defer our selection of countermeasures until we've completed characterization. And there are several European, Russian, and American studies that are working to characterize this phenomenon. Then we'll sit down with researchers, flight surgeons, practicing clinical immunologists, and collectively look at this data and then try and figure out, okay, what will the countermeasure be for the immune system? Other disciplines, I'm sure, have the same discussion with their experts. Mm -hmm. When you've selected your countermeasure, then you would probably want to look at that in a ground environment first and validate it. And if there's time within the lifespan of ISS, you would want to do an in-flight validation also. Hmm. So we have a lot of data on the International Space Station already. You know, we've been up there for nearly 18 years at this point for the continuous human presence. Just a lot of people going up and, and living there um, successfully, too. Uh, we do things like you're saying with countermeasures, just wiping down the inside of the space station. Um, so what do we understand about living in a closed environment so far? Do, do we even have to worry about um, some sort of external, I mean, I'm thinking, when I think of immunology, the first thing I think about, like you're saying, is like a common cold or it's just some sort of virus, bacteria, something that can affect uh, you know, I, I guess us in everyday life, but an astronaut, you know, do we have to even worry about that in a closed environment? Well, the answer is yes. And huh. we learned that early on in the space program. If you've ever seen the, the great movie Apollo 13, yeah. you know about how a space mission can be affected by, uh, by clinical disease, mm. uh, either before the mission or, or during the mission. And in fact, we, we had several infectious disease uh, events during the Apollo program. And that led to the implementation of the Health Stabilization Program, which is basically your pre-flight quarantine. After that was implemented, the rates for infectious disease during space missions went down. And so that was one of the first operational countermeasures that was really put in place to help keep astronauts healthy during their space missions. Hmm. Um, there are other types of operational countermeasures that we're doing today. Uh, we screen, you, you, you seem to be asking about environmental 
uh, concerns. And mm-hmm. we screen uh, food that goes up, uh, payloads that go up, uh, get a toxic toxicological screen, uh, a microbial screen, and so we're trying our best to keep this environment clean and that will help keep the astronauts safe. Yeah. And as we continue to characterize things that happen to physiology during uh, missions on ISS, uh, you'll start to see uh, more discussion of these biomedical countermeasures, uh, just something that someone might ingest, a supplement or, or a medication. But collectively, all of these uh, operational countermeasures and uh, countermeasures that are ingestible will be employed on these deep space exploration missions. For sure. The cleanest environment, uh, the fastest spaceship, uh, the the (laughs) most pristine foods and water that we can get, and this wonderful uh, set of medications to help keep people healthy. Man, that sounds like a great place to spend some time in space. Yeah, that's a good vehicle, the one you're describing. If you can set it up, I'm willing to go with you. So that's a great overview of what we know so far about living on the ISS. Stan Love added a few more details outside of immunology, and there's a lot here, about 10 minutes worth of stuff, but stick with me because it's super interesting and totally worth it. And we'll get back into the immune system afterwards. Now, how about the uh, International Space Station specifically? What are we learning, what are we learning on th- there uh, about living in a closed environment? Maybe about lights, maybe about air, maybe about stuff like that. Um. Uh, well, first of all, uh, with the confinement, the small volume, mm. space station crews, to my knowledge, have never complained that there wasn't enough room. So the space station is good for at least six months, okay. but space station's really big, and we can't send it to Mars because it's too big. Yeah. Um, lighting, um, lighting on space station early on tended to be kind of dim, mm. um, and there was enough light for people to do their work, but there's, um, it affects your mood your emotional state if the lights are too dim all the time. Um, getting exposure to sunlight is important for keeping your biological clock running properly. So you feel sleepy at bedtime, you sleep well at night, and then you wake up refreshed in the morning. That's not a given in space. Hmm. When we're going to Mars without a planet to interpose itself between us and the sun to make night. It's always going to be full sunlight outside, but there aren't going to be very many, many windows, so it's going to be artificial lighting inside. Um, Lighting on space station has been gradually changing out with brighter lights and lights that you can change to be bluish in the morning. And that helps your biological clock say, oh, it's morning, it's time to get up and be energetic. And they can actually make them a little bit redder in the, in the evening on space station. Um, and that tells your biological clock, oh, the sun's going down, I should be getting ready to have a meal and go to sleep. Hmm. Um, so we've got that capability on space station now and I haven't heard anybody complaining about the lights, so I think we've got that. Um, Food, water, and air are crucial. We don't last long without those. And for Mars, we cannot take enough fresh water in tanks to, to keep the crew hydrated for six months, nine months out, a year on the surface of Mars, nine months back. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to recycle our water. And yes, that's gross. <laughs> uh, and my, my buddy Spanky, who's spent a couple of couple of tours on the space station calls it turning yesterday's coffee into tomorrow's coffee. <laughs> I love that. Um, so that piece of equipment, first it has to work really well. If your water starts tasting like pee, you're going to be an unhappy person oh, yeah. and eventually an unhealthy person. <laughs> um, and if it breaks, you're stuffed, right? You're, oh, yeah. You are in terrible trouble. Um, and unfortunately, this kind of closed life support, you know, where we recycle most of our water. So we can distill clear water out of urine, 
the stuff left behind is so gross you don't even want to think about it. It's like dark brown, ammonia stinking sludge. Oh, and we keep now that I'm in. thinking about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, mm, okay. Uh, so that part we can't recycle, although we're thinking about ways to get even squeeze even more water out of that. But I hope that works really well because the sludge that it's coming from is not appetizing. Um, you have to do the same thing with your air. You inhale. Uh, actually, most of our air is nitrogen that our bodies don't use. You inhale, you burn up some of that oxygen, you exhale some carbon dioxide. You got to pull that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Hmm. Over the years, that's given us a lot of trouble. We had what we thought were machines that could keep the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere down to a nice, low, comfortable level. But we're finding out that with six months of exposure, a level of CO2 that you wouldn't even notice, CO2 carbon dioxide, that you wouldn't even notice if you were exposed to it for a day. If you're exposed to it days on end, it starts giving you headaches. There are mood changes. People get irritable. Um, it adjusts the, the, the chemistry of your blood if you're breathing a lot of carbon dioxide. That's what actually triggers your breathing reflex. Hmm. There's changes in the, in the uh, acidity of your blood. Ooh. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> and so we're finding that for long duration, we need to keep the carbon dioxide down low, at a low, low level um, where our machines can barely keep the CO2 down there because you're trying to scrub. If you know if scrubbing carbon dioxide out of air was easy, we wouldn't have any worries about climate change. Uh, getting carbon dioxide out of air is hard. It takes a lot of power, um, complicated machinery, things that absorb carbon dioxide when they're cold, and then you seal those off, open a vent to the outside, heat it up, and drive the CO2 out overboard. Where now we actually can um, take the uh, carbon dioxide and water um, that are that people are exhaling. You also exhale water vapor that has to be captured from the cabin atmosphere and removed, or the humidity gets really high and it gets real sticky and mm. gross inside. So all that stuff has to work, and we have to try to recycle some of it, um, and we can actually convert some of that uh, uh, captured oxygen and carbon dioxide back to water and oxygen that we can use. Nice. So that part's good, but then we're dumping methane overboard. Well, we could keep that methane and use it for a rocket propellant if we were very clever about it. But you, there's going to be some loss, but we have to recycle and recycle and recycle because we just can't carry all that much raw materials. And so that equipment becomes crucial. If it breaks, you're going to die. Mm. Um, they gloss over this quickly in The Martian, if you saw that movie or read the book. The yeah. science is even better in the book. The movie did a pretty good job. The book does an excellent job. Hmm. Um, he sort of glosses over, yeah, the air recycler has to keep working. And it never broke. So that was good because he lived. Right. Um, and when you think about spaceships, you know, we have satellites that uh, do communications, that take pictures of the Earth. We have robots that go out to the planets. And we've launched thousands and thousands of these things over the, the history of space programs. And all of them have a power system and a computer system and a communication system and structures and thermal control and all these other systems. Only a couple have had life support systems. So we have millions of hours of runtime on basic spacecraft mechanical systems we don't have as many hours on life support systems. So this technology is in its infancy hmm. compared to most of the things that are on spaceships, and hence, they break a lot. <laughs> now, on space station, that's fine. We have a lot of spare parts on the space station, and we can send up more with, you know, six weeks of notice because we got robot ships going up there all the time. Yeah. Uh, on the way to Mars, though, nah, -uh. You don't have a possibility of resupply. You can pre-stage some stuff at Mars. But uh, as, as we like to darkly, humorously point out, if your life support system breaks halfway to Mars, you have the rest of your life to fix it. <laughs> that is pretty dark, but yeah, pretty dark. funny. <laughs> so, but it gets the point across, right? It does, you, it does. You've got to get this repaired or you're going to die. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it must recycle because we cannot bring raw materials. The one mm. thing we can't recycle yet at all is food. 
So um, turn a poop into a salad. Only the earth can do that for you. Ah. Uh. Okay? <laughs> Only the earth can turn your poop into salad. Right. And, and I mean an appetizing salad. <laughs> uh, so we... Uh, a farm needs sunlight. A, a sunlight is something like a thousand watts on every square yard of plants. Wow. And when you figure out how much grow lights that is, no spacecraft power system can support that. Even if you made a farm and grew a couple of very selective uh, crops on small areas that was barely enough to feed the crew, plants get sick. Single species plants get sick easy. Hmm. Um, and if a, if a you know rust wipes out your wheat crop halfway to Mars, you're out of luck, right? You got, uh, no, you got no harvest, you're dead. And yeah. you know, this was a problem for humans in antiquity. We've gotten better at that, you know, with fertilizers and, uh, you know, pest treatments for our crops. Um, but it's tough to recreate a farm in a spacecraft, the power, the weight, you could use sunlight, but now you need giant windows. Engineers hate little tiny windows because keeping the air pressure inside from blowing the window out to the outside means heavy structures and triple panes of glass and then it gets big and heavy and you can't make a greenhouse. Mm. Same thing on Mars, it doesn't have enough air pressure to, to hold, <sighs> hold your greenhouse down. The oh. internal pressure from normal air is 15 pounds on every square inch of that glass in that greenhouse. Um, so farms are a long time coming. Yeah. And people who study this problem uh, professionally um, gain a new appreciation for the services that we get from the earth without paying for them. Hmm. These would be very, very expensive if we had to try to reproduce them from scratch. Um, there was even a long-term experiment that uh, was built and run in Arizona called Biosphere 2. And they built this gigantic greenhouse, and they seeded it with uh, miniature biomes, like a jungle and a coral reef and an ocean, and tried to recreate uh, a miniature Earth's environment, totally sealed from the outside, and they put six people in it, and they were going to try to live there for a year or so. And the results were not good. Really? Okay. Um, the bees that they had for pollinating the crop all died immediately. The ants and cockroaches population exploded. The oxygen in the atmosphere began disappearing. They had to pump in extra oxygen oh, wow. to keep the crew from perishing. Right. <laughs> um, strange, horrible chemicals started showing up in the environment that were eventually traced to the body fat of the crew members, you know, from eating, you know, apples that had some pesticides or something. They had this in their body fat and they lost so much weight that those chemicals were showing up in the environment. Wow. Um, and eventually they had to terminate the experiment. And there were, there were many, many things that were problems with that, not just the, the technical, the, the management was difficult as well. Hmm. But look it up sometime. Yeah. And think about, okay, I have to make a new biosphere too, and if any part of it fails, I'm dead. And, you know. Gives you a lot of appreciation for the Earth. Yes. Earth does a pretty good job of keeping Earth does an alive. awesome job, and we should yeah. not mess with that capability because we are highly invested in it. <laughs> the way I like to put it. We are highly invested in the status quo. Oh, yeah. So, um, Farms in space are going to be a long time coming. Appreciate what you got here. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the environment, and it seems it seems pretty straightforward, right? You, you want a clean spacecraft, you want a fast spacecraft, you want one with enough food. Now, what do, what are we doing to make sure that the astronaut's immune system is strong? Are there stuff? Is there like exercises or or something? Maybe uh, I don't know. Getting enough getting enough sleep is something that really helps with keeping the immune system strong in space. Well, what you're really getting into are translational aspects of physiology that can influence the immune system. Hmm. And so exercise is important to keep the immune system strong. 
if you don't exercise, uh, you will become somewhat immune deficient and, and you should exercise to maintain your immune health and well those other aspects of your body. Too much exercise though can have an adverse effect on the immune system. Marathon runners uh, have a higher incidence of infectious diseases after uh, completing these races because it's, it's a stressor on the body. And so uh, like most things in life, there is a, a sweet spot of activity where you want to be not too much, not too little. That's right. That's why I don't run marathons really. I just don't want to get sick. I've done three. It's very challenging. <laughs> really? I'm a, I'm a middle to the end of the pack kind of guy. <laughs> Did you get sick afterwards? No. Oh, okay. But I wouldn't say that I was really physically exerting that much. <laughs> middle to the le- Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So was that is that really a consideration for spaceflight then, making sure that even if they are exercising, because it, it does help with the immune system and sleeping enough, um, that they're not doing so, they're not exerting themselves too much. Is that a consideration for for maintaining immune health? That's an interesting question. And NASA and, and our wonderful exercise experts here uh, have been working this for decades. Uh, different types of aerobic and resistive exercise devices have been employed on ISS, and, and we've been looking at their uh, effects on bone loss, muscle loss. Mm-hmm. And it's getting better, is my understanding. This is not my area of expertise, but, but certainly all of these exercise countermeasures are having a positive effect. Some crews don't lose that much bone and muscle as compared to uh, early in the space program. So on top of exercise, you know, we're, we're talking we're talking sleeping too. You know, we actually had a conversation. I think it was, oh gosh, I've we've had a lot at this at this point. I want to say it's um, it was with Tom Williams. Uh, we talked a little bit about sleep because um, he did a lot of a number of sleep studies. But how how sleeping is, I guess, affected to the immune system. And and you you mentioned a little bit about circadian rhythm too, seeing 16 sunrises and sunsets per day. Right. Um, proper sleep enough sleep is also very important for maintaining a healthy immune system and you you have a circadian rhythm uh, that, that helps you sleep well at night and so uh, cortisol is a stress hormone levels of cortisol will fluctuate throughout the day yeah. uh, your peak cortisol cortisol in your your blood or saliva is about 30 minutes after waking you're up and ready to go uh, it tends to uh, trail down for the rest of the day get you ready your lowest levels are, are at night before sleep you get you ready for sleep and so proper immune system also requires sufficient sleep and also requires a, a well-maintained circadian rhythm. What happens in space is they rapidly lose their circadian entrainment. And what we see is sleep medications are probably the most um, commonly used medication on orbit. Really? Uh, to help the, the crews um, get a proper night's sleep. And so one of the things that is probably contributing to the dysregulation of the immune system we see on orbit is definitely a loss of uh, circadian entrainment in these crews. Hmm. Uh, We can look at the effects of sleep loss uh, terrestrially, either in a laboratory setting. Uh, Stephen Chia did a nice study where he looked at the immune system of people that either didn't get enough sleep or that were shifted one or two hours a day over the course of a week to look at just the effect of sleep on the immune system. We can also look at people doing a winter over in Antarctica. Uh, so crews spend a year in Antarctica, uh, they spend several months in a period of 24-hour darkness. And oh. so that has a profound effect on their physiology. And we are, uh, along with uh, European collaborators, in particular Dr. Alexander Choker, we're looking at what happens to the immune system in several Antarctic bases. 
uh, Antarctica is a mountain. And so uh, some of the interior bases like South Pole Station or Concordia, uh, you get this sleep alterations, the circadian loss, this 24-hour darkness, and you also have a persistent hyperbaric hypoxia. Coastal Antarctic winter over, you have a normoxic environment, but you also have that extreme environment. And so, yes, in flight, sleep is important. It can affect the immune system, and, and these are the tools we would look uh, use to look at this uh, phenomenon on the ground. Hmm. Antarctica, wow. I'm I mean, if, if I was going to go to Antarctica, I'd probably choose a 24-hour light. That would probably make me feel a little bit better. They have that during the <laughs> Antarctic summer. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to the Antarctic winter, they get the 24-hour darkness. <laughs> right. I don't know why you'd sign up for the Antarctic winter trip, but how long are they staying there to, to really get enough data to, to understand this circadian change? Crews performing a winter over in Antarctica at most of the bases, uh, the, the typical mission duration is about a year. That makes it a fantastic ground-based spaceflight analog where we want a pro, uh, prolonged mission duration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the year is dictated by the calendar year. Uh, generally, during the summer period in Antarctica, you have resupply of these bases, uh, crew swaps happen, and then the, uh, the, the last crews leave for the winter over period and the crews do their one year uh, duration with the middle of the Antarctic winter being the, the three months or so of 24-hour darkness. Hmm. Um, do we have enough data to understand what's happening to the immune system uh, because of these sleep studies, or, or is there still a lot that we still need to look into? Well, we've been, if you're asking about Antarctica, yes, we're, we're learning more. Um, hmm. People have been looking at the reactivation of latent herpes viruses, which is a nice biomarker for immune dysregulation in Antarctic winter over and during space flight for decades. Dr. Dwayne Pearson uh, at NASA was one of the pioneers for using viral DNA in saliva as a biomarker for immune dysregulation. Uh, But more recently, the studies I mentioned with with our European collaborators are helping us to really define comprehensively what happens to the immune system during Antarctic winter over. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of the same assays that we use to characterize immune changes in astronauts that have happened on ISS, we simply translate those assays uh, to Antarctica and employ them there. And it gives us a very nice flight to ground comparison. Right. Uh, what's interesting is the different ways you have to change things to implement studies in these two different locations. And so for space flight, it's very difficult to take our laboratory there uh, or, or get a lot of crew time to do a lot of processing for these samples. And so we'll draw a blood sample, we'll bring it back to Earth, and we can get an ambient blood sample in our hands in about 37 hours that was collected during space flight. Huh. Uh, for Antarctic winter over, you don't have a rapid return for samples like this and so you have to but you do have the ability to deploy a little more equipment and so at Concordia Station in particular we deployed uh, flow cytometers uh, various sample processing apparatus and we're able to have the crews do a little more uh, remote processing of our samples uh, during their winter over activities Hmm. but we're chasing the same data a flight to ground comparison is very important for validating a ground-based analog which is a nice tool to help you understand what's happening during flight and also a nice location then you can probably use to test your countermeasures. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of other um there's a lot of other research going on too that's uh you you use the word analog this that's these sort of studies where you're putting them in a in an environment that's, you know, it's not like you're taking a vacation. I wouldn't call that a vacation at all, but you're really um, just putting them in this environment to really understand what it's like in this in these hostile environments. Um, Antarctica is one of them. Uh, there's another one called Mars 500, too. What's happening there? Are we, are we doing similar studies? Mars 500 is a very interesting uh, 
spaceflight analog that's happening in Russia at the Institute for Biomedical Problems in Moscow. And I, I should probably back up and, and give you the overview of these different types of analogs and, and how they work. Hmm. And so analogs on the ground are, are wonderful for doing physiological uh, assessments of people and learning a little bit about spaceflight without having to go there. Uh, but the choice of analog depends really on the system that you're interested in. And so if I'm interested in bone and muscle loss, we use head down tilt bed rest. We put people in bed for 90 days and they don't move. Uh, they have the, well, they, they move a little bit in the bed, but they don't get up. They have this hypokinesis. They don't use their bones and muscles uh, as much. They're head down tilted, so you get fluid shifts, and it's a great analog. Hmm. That's not a great analog for immune dysregulation because a lot of the stressors I mentioned before aren't present in that analog. Right. Antarctic winter over would not be a good analog for these bone and muscle uh, scientists because in, even in Antarctica, you're in a 1G field and you're carrying things around and you're ambulatory and you're walking about. And so you have this whole suite of analogs uh, that differ. We also have cell culture analogs and animal analogs, a whole host of tools we can use. Uh, Mars 500 is a really nice analog where they've recreated a, a, the interior of a space vehicle and they put people in it for up to 500 days and simulate the entire du anticipated duration of a Mars mission, including landing day, and then they have them exit the vehicle and do a little simulated uh, planetary exploration in spacesuits, mm -hmm. re-enter the vehicle. And so to pretty high fidelity, they recreate a Mars mission, and except you're, you're lacking the, the radiation component, the microgravity component, but most other other aspects of the flight can be replicated. They even did communication delays, I believe, to make it more realistic. Hmm. And we did have some uh, of our European and Russian collaborators do immune assessment uh, on the Mars 500 participants and did see some interesting changes that, that some aspects of which did look like spaceflight. And so there's probably a psychological stress uh, component to what is happening to the immune system also. Right, but this is this is an analog where you don't have you you're not able to play with microgravity because this is this is happening in Russia, um, so you're taking away some of these components that really fully encapsulate um, what it's like the spaceflight environment basically. But um, you're still getting immune responses just based on being in the environment, the stress of it. Um, what is, what is, I guess this might be a fundamental question, but what is stressful about being in a closed environment for up to 500 days? Well, you're right uh, in that we cannot, in an analog, replicate all the factors associated with spaceflight. Right, which is why when we have I, a lot. When I lecture students, I, I, I tell them uh, two things in particular. We, we can't really put people in a microgravity room. We don't have something like that. <laughs> and the... Uh, the boards that regulate our science frown on me irradiating people. And so you're never really going to get uh, the radiation, the microgravity component. But as you right. said, there are a lot of other stressors that influence people during spaceflight. Those can be replicated to mm -hmm. pretty high fidelity on the ground. Uh, the psychological aspects, the confinement, uh, the circadian shifts, the stressors. Uh, one of the things we prefer for immunology are, in fact, these aren't really analog missions or mission simulations. If you go to Antarctica, that's a real mission with real risk to self. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a dangerous place down there. The, the aircraft operations down there and the extreme temperatures. And so we call them spaceflight analogs, but in fact, these are real missions to dangerous places. So to answer your question about what is stressful, um, there are different types of stress. Um, 
there are psychological stressors, there are physiological stressors. Right? You being away from loved ones or being in a confined uh, small craft is a psychological stressor. Uh, circadian misalignment might be a physiological stressor. Uh, you have different mechanisms in the body, uh, most of which are regulated by the immune system that control uh, stress and your response to stress. Mm. Uh, you have something called the fight or flight response, right. uh, which is you, you're either going to ramp up your, your adrenaline levels and, and want to engage that stressor if it's an acute stress, or if it's chronic stress, you see changes mediated by the cortisol, uh, which, are the, the, uh, uh, which are generally immunosuppressive. Um, elevated levels of cortisol are, are really not good. And so spaceflight is a very unique stress model uh, we have learned through, through our data over the years. It is a six-month-long chronic stressor with intermittent acute stressors, uh, spacewalks, uh, uh, right. stressful uh, events on orbit. Uh, sometimes we purposely... Uh, uh, circadian shift the cruise because a vehicle is going to dock or undock. Right. So we don't really have a stress model like that on the ground, which is one of the reasons why the, the flight data that we're seeing may be so unique. Um, I think you asked about the flight to ground comparison. And yes, mm -hmm. in some of these analogs, uh, from an immunological perspective, they look like flight, but we haven't seen one yet that looks exactly like flight. Uh, we look at dozens of different types of um, immune proteins in the blood, cytokines, and, and the distribution of these cells and their function. We, we look at immune cell function uh, in, uh, in cell culture uh, assays that we do. We haven't seen anything yet that looks exactly like flight. Well, you need to put them in the room with the, with the gravity switch and blast them with radiation, and there you go. Well, the IRB frowns on us doing that. So <laughs> until then, we'll, we'll struggle using the closest analogs we can find and yes. actually look at people during their missions, which is even better yet. Right. So, so we, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, when, when we're talking about countermeasures, just ways to prevent these, any sort of immune, um, I don't know, sickness, any, any kind of sickness when it comes to these um, astronauts. There's a lot of things that you don't think of directly as countermeasures, like, for example, getting a cold and taking cold medicine. Um, but, well, maybe that's not a countermeasure. That's more of like a, I guess, a way to treat it. Treatment. Um, but, yeah, what are, what are some curious ways that we are, I guess, reducing the stress uh, for the astronauts on board, um, making it, I guess, a f just a friendlier environment. It is a hostile environment, but as, as friendly as we can make it so that we're reducing their stress. Well, what you're describing is a, a very bona fide approach to, to keeping astronauts healthy. We want to reduce their stress. Hmm. And so uh, we enable them to talk to their families, uh, there's actually a satellite phone on board the space station. They can call home when they when they need to. Uh, we try and create work schedules uh, that are palatable for them. We don't want them to be working uh, constantly and, and wearing themselves out. They're, they're working hard enough as it is, but we want to keep them healthy. And so we, we properly uh, regulate their work schedules. Uh, there are assigned uh, psychological support folks on the ground uh, that help get them um, say a TV show that they're interested in uh, for free time or something like that and so psychological support is very definitely something that is happening uh, on board ISS and something that is being taken very seriously for uh, the pending exploration missions. Right so it's these these elements will be probably I guess you can say they will be part of the exploration mission. So if you have a long duration stay to Mars they're, they're gonna be sending them these um, 
movies and just ways to sort of relax along the way. Uh, but then also there, they're going to have to have some break time. Yeah, the what's interesting about considering uh, the the lunar missions or or Mars missions that should happen uh, by the 2020s. Uh, it's nice to see all that moving forward. Is the the vehicle design is happening now, and so hmm. on ISS you're, you're not far from home, and you have a tremendous amount of space uh, with which to uh, 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 to start to deploy exercise equipment, sleep compartments, uh, carry a lot of food, and these pending uh, these upcoming exploration missions, the situation will almost be the opposite. You're not going to have a return option. You're going to have a very small vehicle. And so one of the challenges I think NASA and, and international partner space agencies are dealing with is how to maximize the, the reductions in stress and the crew comfort and, and crew health on these missions while, while doing it uh, farther from home in a higher energy radiation environment uh, in, with more stress. Yeah, yeah. Now thinking about missions, I guess, beyond uh, the space station, you know, now that we're kind of going towards that topic. Well, I'm thinking about systems, really. I'm thinking about, uh, we're talking about a hostile environment, making the environment as, I guess, more comfortable uh, to to make sure the crew is happy and healthy, which is very directly related to um, the immune system. Um, Because the happier they are, the healthier they are, you know, psychologically, uh, physiologically, they're going to be successful on, on these missions. Uh, but the, the systems that they're in, the closed environment that they have to be a part of, is a concern just in and of itself. Because right now on the space station, let's just say, you know, the toilet, they have to fix the toilet a lot. Uh, they have to fix the water recycling system a lot. And these are systems that need to be reliable uh, for missions farther out, because you're talking about a system working as well as possible to uh, make sure the crew is going to be healthy and happy for a three-year mission to Mars, the way, to Mars, on Mars, the way back from Mars. Um, are these things that, I guess from a human factor standpoint, would be added stressors uh, if we had to deal with maintaining systems and worrying about the reliability of these systems. Well, you're making excellent points, and I agree with what you're saying. And you're, I think what you're basically saying is vehicle design for these missions uh, beyond the Van Allen belt is a very serious consideration. Oh, yeah. And so we've got the ability to uh, afford repairs on ISS if we have to. We can make a spacewalk. There's, there's enough room to have spare parts for a lot of different types of equipment. Um, you're, you're simply not going to have those options uh, in the far more dangerous environment of uh, the lunar vicinity or transitioning, transitioning to Mars. And what that really comes down to is that systems have to be super reliable. Stan Love had some ideas on what that means for astronauts. The difficulty of transporting things to Mars means that we can take only the minimum amount of weight and things, and that includes spare parts. Um, space station right now was built, uh, and of course we can send spare parts whenever we want, but the last four shuttle missions to space station carried nothing but gigantic multi-ton pallets of spare parts <laughs> that were affixed to the outside of space station and those things are waiting and we've used a few of those over the years since the shuttle program was canceled. Um, and 
you know, we can't afford to have a third of the mass of our Mars mission be spare parts. We'll never be able to go. So that means we have to build machines that don't break ever. Hmm. And we're getting good at that in some areas. Hmm. Uh, jet engines, well, there was a, a recent um, thing in the headlines with the engine through a turbine blade. Um, but jet engines are incredibly reliable these days that you get millions of run hours you know, before you get a failure. If we could make everything on the spacecraft, especially that re recycling equipment, oh yeah, <laughs> that level of reliability, but now it's, uh, it has to be built with extra structural margin so that it doesn't get cracks in it. You make things thicker, that makes them heavier. Yeah. Uh, you have to test them for decades, right? <laughs> That's how long a jet engine can last to make sure they're gonna last those years. So it becomes, you add weight, you add expense, you add development time to prove that things are that reliable. That's a great point. I think what you're getting at is what if something goes wrong, either from a vehicle perspective or from a clinical perspective? And we actually have learned quite a bit on ISS about what happens if something goes wrong from a clinical perspective. Uh, in addition to researchers characterizing what is happening in, in astronauts, we also want to know if they become ill. And that is, to a certain extent, their confidential medical data. That's not part of a research study. Mm. But we, for obvious reasons, we're interested in, in what is the incidence of infectious disease on board ISS? What happens on board ISS clinically? And so we have a uh, epidemiology group at the Johnson Space Center that, that very kindly compiled a lot of that data for us uh, through the first 40 or so ISS expeditions. In fact, they do have some degree of clinical incidence on board station. And we generally haven't heard a lot about that. It's not a tremendous amount. It's nothing that's uh, of, a, of a serious concern, I, I think, for, for NASA or for the public, but it's happening. And so you have infectious diseases on board ISS. Uh, some rare crews have some uh, dermatitis issues that persist during flight. And so characterizing that on ISS is a very prudent thing to do because we don't want things like that to get worse uh, on, on the way to Mars. But you mentioned the return option, and, and yes, we have that rapid return option on board ISS, and we won't have that on the way to Mars. And so we, we very definitely need to characterize the human system uh, on board ISS during orbital spaceflight uh, before we put it in this smaller, uh, more constrained vehicle and, and put it out into this higher energy radiation environment for, uh, say, a several years mission um, uh, to another planet. That's right. Now, now based on what we know, um, for, from an immunology perspective, uh, we, we talked a little bit with uh, Dr. Antonson again about um, medication. Um, do, we, do we know enough about immunology where, is, is, it, is there something universal that we can apply uh, to the astronauts, maybe medication or maybe some sort of countermeasure uh, that can help prevent it? Or is there, is there a more personalized route that we really have to be considerate, considering? like a personalized medication or something, some kind of, um, I don't know, something with genetics, I'm not sure. Well, you made a very good point before when we were talking about getting a cold and the, the medications you take after that are a treatment. Yeah. And so you can look at the med kit on board station and parse that out into, okay, what are the treatments? Most of it is treatments, but what are the countermeasures? And the countermeasure is something that you're gonna take before you get sick. Right. And try and prevent the development of illness because you're fixing what's broken in your physiology. And, and that is something that the community is still discussing. What will the countermeasures be? What are the treatments? You also mentioned personalized medicine, and that's going to be a very important part of biomedical countermeasures for spaceflight. Uh, we have 
folks uh, that are experts in this, Jeff Ginsburg in particular, who are starting to work with NASA and help us figure out uh, how to take uh, personalized medicine, precision medicine, and apply it to our unique problem, which is very healthy people in an adverse environment, and we want to keep them healthy. Mm. And so we may need to be screening our astronauts at some point in the future. Uh, do they have a predisposition to allergy or not? We, would, we would, might tailor a countermeasure uh, to them or for them uh, based on their own personal history. Right. Uh, if they get more infectious diseases than, than another crew member, we would like to know that. Uh, there are even some biomedical tests that you can perform to look at, say, uh, their predisposition to inflammation, or I'm, I'm speculating perhaps their individual microbiome, uh, which latent viruses uh, they are seropositive for and which ones they're not. There are a whole variety of things that we might consider looking at in individual astronauts as a screen prior to sending them on these exploration missions because it would help us guide their personalized suite of countermeasures. But it sounds like we sort of, we already understand what we need to look for uh, before we send someone out on a deep space mission. You're, you're already screening them, you're already under, sort of understanding their physiology and what, what they may need to be successful on a space flight. Is that something that we can do? Do a lot of testing beforehand and understand what we'll need for a long trip? Well, the answer is yes, we can do that. We're not doing that yet. We don't hmm. really have a need to do that for ISS missions. Uh, ISS is really the adverse environment that is near to us that we can use to characterize these phenomena. And, and honestly, we're still learning. Hmm. Uh, even this many years into uh, the lifespan of ISS, we're still characterizing uh, various biomedical phenomenon and learning. We, we recently learned that astronauts have a vision issue uh, that we were generally unaware of uh, until a few years ago. Hmm. And we're learning about uh, subtle aspects of how the immune system responds to spaceflight that we didn't know until very recently. There are some uh, very interesting articles that will be coming out soon. Uh, Dr. Ricky Simpson at the University of Arizona is going to publish an article looking at the function of natural killer cells. I mentioned those before oh, yeah. in astronauts. This was completely unknown before his study that in fact NK cell function is depressed in astronauts. Huh. And that persists for a six month mission. And so even now we're still learning uh, uh, aspects of physiology that are altered that we may need to target these countermeasures for. Wow. So is there something that we can do uh, I guess before spaceflight, like what are we what are we doing before they even launch uh, to really make sure that they are going to be successful? Or at least right now for the space station, uh, is there is our is our countermeasures or, or preparation studies uh, that we're doing to understand this information? So we are not really implementing specific immune countermeasures yet, hmm. and in fact. Uh, our, our biomedical elements within the human research program are all collectively working to characterize their, their systems and, and talk about their countermeasures. Uh, you have had some successful uh, countermeasures. Potassium citrate, uh, Dr. Peggy Whitson uh, was the principal investigator for a study that looked at renal stone risk on board ISS and successfully validated uh, using potassium citrate pills as a countermeasure for that. Uh, but generally, we're all a little less mature in our countermeasures uh, uh, development. And hmm. so collectively, the disciplines within the human research program are looking at this. You're going to see uh, more translational countermeasures be discussed. I've, I've heard of the integrated countermeasure suite. And so it's impossible to implement a countermeasure for one system and not have it influence another system. Your immune countermeasures are probably going to have a positive or negative influence on bone, 
uh, cardio, host pathogen interactions, and, and conversely, just about any countermeasure you can think someone might implement for another system, say exercise, is going to positively affect immune. And so really you have um, uh, a lot of integration in, in NASA's approach to looking at the problems and, and in the development of the countermeasures. Hmm. So looking, looking kind of forward um, to, let's just say we have a uh, long duration stay on the moon. We're looking at, at, the, at the moon to really get more data to understand what's needed to go even further out uh, to have a habitat on Mars. What are some of the interesting things if we were to have a long duration mission, say six months, maybe maybe even a year uh, on the moon, that can really give us insight into even uh, missions even further out from an immune perspective? Well, the um, moon is a very interesting place. Yeah. And from an immune perspective, uh, we really feel that the destination almost doesn't matter. Hmm. When you're beyond the Van Allen Bell, and you increase the radiation, and you increase the stress, and you're living in constant microgravity, it, it doesn't matter where you go, you're probably going to manifest the same types of immune problems from mm. one destination to another. Uh, living on the moon is an interesting uh, consideration, though, because you're not in pure microgravity. Now you're in one-sixth gravity. Right. And so I don't think anybody knows uh, if you look at a, a moving scale from zero gravity to one uh, times the force of gravity we have here, where does the problem start? Is half gravity enough? Is one-sixth enough? I don't think anybody knows. Uh, there have been some uh, uh, fractional gravity bed rest studies uh, mm. that have been implemented, uh, but I don't think they really were able to look at the immune system because bed rest isn't the, the best analog, uh, I don't believe, for the immune system. Uh, but it is something that uh, folks are aware of. Um, there's been an artificial gravity study that NASA worked at uh, in Galveston at the University of uh, UTMB down hmm. there at UTMB yeah. in Galveston. Sorry, you can stitch that together. <laughs> uh, that looked at artificial gravity uh, as a countermeasure. And so, yeah, fractional, when you talk about the moon, you're really talking about fractional uh, uh, gravitational forces and what's the effect of that on physiology. And that's an area I don't think anybody has really uh, been able to investigate. It's very difficult to investigate that on Earth because you're in a constant 1G field and you just can't get away from it. As much as it would be great to have that zero G room. We, we just don't have that. <laughs> so it seems like gravity is just a consideration for a lot of different things. Talking with a lot of the other experts, it's, it's for this immune system, it's for the crew behavior health. There's a lot of fluid shifts. You know, there's a lot of exercise, bone, muscle loss, a lot of things that are associated with just this lack of understanding of what happens uh, in this uh, one six gravity environment. Yeah. We evolved as people in a constant 1G field, and no right. one had ever been out of it uh, until the uh, the first astronauts and cosmonauts launched in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody fully realized what being outside of gravity can do to your body. Hmm. And we see uh, we see astronauts working very successfully uh, and and enjoying their stays on board ISS. But if you take cells out of the body. Uh, immune cells out of the body. I can pull T cells from, from your blood right now. And if we put them in culture and we stimulate them and try and recreate an immune response, they literally don't work. They don't respond. Huh. And, and that is absent stress, uh, huh. radiation, or anything else. Just having these cells cultured in microgravity, uh, they don't respond. 
And so uh, investigators on the ground, NASA and external investigators have been um, doing flight studies of cell culture and, and uh, culturing cells in, in ground-based apparatuses, uh, ap ground-based apparatus uh, such as a bioreactor, which mimics microgravity culture, to try and figure out why. Uh, mm. And it appears that there are gravity-sensitive waypoints in, say, the signal uh, transduction pathways that, that where the cell tells the nucleus how to respond uh, that are gravity sensitive. Who would have ever thought that our cells would have a gravity sensitive waypoint within them and that they would stop working in microgravity? And yet that appears to be the case. Wow. I don't even know what you do with that. <laughs> I mean, there's not like, there's no like pill you can take and be like, oh, there's a gravity pill. Um, there's yeah, that's a huge consideration. Well, there's, there's a couple things you could do. Mm. I mean, you, you there are immune boosters, uh, um, oh. uh, immune stimuli that might help overcome uh, uh, this effect to some degree. Uh, people have considered artificial gravity as a countermeasure. Hmm. Uh, seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, if you could rotate the vehicle and get gravity back, uh, it might help mitigate some of that, those effects. Mm -hmm. but, but also, I, I mentioned that we can pull cells out of you and me. Mm -hmm. uh, stimulate them to microgravity and they wouldn't respond. And yet the astronauts are very healthy on orbit. So we don't necessarily know if that phenomenon is reproduced inside the body because you, the cells in the body are not just floating in a pristine microgravity environment. They're moving. They're moving through the blood and they're migrating in and out of tissues and they're looking for targets to respond to to, to keep you healthy. And mm. so it's a it's a... Where we're, where we're bringing this home to is it's a very complicated consideration. <laughs> uh, every system is complicated, in particular the immune system. All these cells and the environment they have to, to function in and keeping them functioning properly to maintain our health, it's a complicated consideration. I think that's actually a good place to start wrapping up because this is the end of our hazard series. Um, this, is the, this is the last episode. And, and the theme that I've sort of heard throughout this entire series so far is we've we've sectioned off each of the hazards and really gone deep into what those hazards mean but throughout my talks with uh, all of the experts all of you guys what i've really learned is that everything is connected you can't just look at just the immune system you got to think about what the gravity is doing and what the bone and muscle is doing and what you know what's why how does fluid shifts uh, go into this going far away you know everything is everything is connected so you know, one thing we talked about actually with another um, Dr. Eric Antonson. You know, we just talked with him, so it's it's all fresh on my mind uh, that particular talk. But we were talking about how um, all the experts are getting together and providing input. Um, so when you are getting together and talking about this d deep space exploration, what are some of the key things that you try to that you try to make sure that we are implementing into our future spaceflight plans? So you're absolutely right, and we actually have a name for that phenomenon and, and what you're describing is interdisciplinary science or translational science hmm. and we have collectively learned that as a, a team uh, over the lifespan of ISS as the nutrition folks uh, have uh, Dr. Scott Smith's lab at JSC have, have looked at inflammation and, and bone markers and nutritional status and they've they've been talking to the immune team down the hall and we've been looking at immune medi mediators and we're starting to connect the dots between these systems. We, we've learned what exercise can do to the immune system, uh, what fluid shifts can, can do to the immune system, uh, and so what inflammation does to a variety of systems. And so we have a name for that phenomenon and, and as as 
you so aptly put, we're, we're working together now collectively more than we ever have before uh, to address clinical risk to crew members as sort of a unified team of investigators across all of these disciplines. Uh, you asked what we'll do about this going forward, and so you're seeing more uh, joint solicitations uh, for science projects or translational solicitations. Instead of uh, NASA or an agency looking to do a, a cardio study or an immune study, you're seeing broader solicitations now where, where the agencies that fund are encouraging investigators to look at translational aspects hmm. uh, of their system or their findings. And also interdisciplinary interpretations of data. Uh, and, and immune study that was completed years ago we now have uh, folks pulling some of that information. Uh, Dr. Hong Lu Wu in, in NASA Radiation is pulling some of the immune data from a study several years ago where he had radiation data. Mm. And so he's looking at, uh, say, inflammation and correlating that with radiation to see if there's a relationship there. And so th the bottom line is more translational work, more in interdisciplinary work, looking at these things together uh, with, within our areas in JSC and also with European uh, scientists, uh, Canadian, uh, Japan, Russian. Uh, we have uh, several very interesting uh, studies uh, that the Japanese Space Agency is, is working on, looking at omics analyses of uh, astronauts on the International Space Station or probiotics as a countermeasure. Uh, so we're very excited to see these studies mature and the data that they'll show, and, and it just keeps feeding more information that all of us use to, to help to close our clinical risks to crew members for these pending exploration missions. Collaboration is so important, but I did want to end on a more selfish note, um, <laughs> and that is what are you, uh, from your immunology perspective, looking forward to most uh, for these deep space missions to figure out? Well, I'll, I'll answer first selfishly. <laughs> I'm looking forward to just seeing them happen. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 50 now, and so I'm very excited to see people go beyond the Van Allen belt and, and get to doing some real space exploration. Uh, as a scientist, uh, I'm looking forward to basically characterizing our system, the immune system, as much as possible hmm. and start to have that dialogue about countermeasures. Uh, as I alluded to before, we've got a big suite of countermeasure options for immunology, nutritional supplements, functional foods, probiotics, medications. And so we plan to have discussions here uh, within the next couple of years where we will engage flight surgeons, uh, researchers, practicing clinical immunologists, people that are actually treating patients. We want them to come here, see our data, and help us figure out what would be the best countermeasure for astronauts on a three-year mission to Mars. Uh, after we make that decision, then we'll have to probably uh, uh, spend some time looking at these countermeasures, validating them in a ground analog or, or hopefully onboard ISS on ISS before the end of its lifespan so that we can have these countermeasures ready for these deep space exploration missions. I'm very excited for it. Brian, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your perspective about these hostile and closed environments, especially from the immunology perspective. Really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Brian Crucian about immunology and that aspect of the hostile and closed environments. That wraps up our five hazards of human spaceflight podcast episodes. You can go back and listen to previous episodes. They're not in really any particular order, but uh, we have associated products that go with those. If you go to nasa.gov HRP, uh, there's a series of videos that are associated with each of these five hazards. They're short animation videos, really give you a nice kind of overview perspective. You can go there uh, to watch those videos. Otherwise, a lot of the stuff that we talked about today and, and a lot of our podcasts happen on the International Space Station. Go to nasa.gov ISS to find the latest there. On social media, that's where we're looking for our questions and, and really answering them here on today's podcast. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can use the hashtag AskNASA on the International Space Station or NASA Johnson Space Center accounts uh, to ask a question or maybe submit an idea for an episode that you'd really like us to dive deep into. For Houston, we have a podcast. Just make sure to mention Houston, we have a podcast. That's how I find it. Because there's a lot of asked NASA questions that we actually cover. So this episode was recorded on June 28th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, Bill Pulaski, Judy Hayes, Cedra Reyna, Mel Whiting, and Natalie Gogans. And thanks again to Brian Crucian for coming on the show. To our listeners, thanks for joining us for this special series on the hazards of human spaceflight. We'll be back next week with your regularly scheduled programming. <laughs>